It's been said that the church's songs should catechize. Catechize. Not everyone in this room will be familiar with that word, to catechize. It means to instruct or to memorably instruct. And the church's songs should do that. They should teach. We know this from verses like Colossians 3.16. Teaching and admonishing one another. How? Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Our songs give us words for what we believe, for our faith. But they also give us words for our feelings. Our songs should lead us in how to think and what to think about and how to feel about it. Whether that's joy or sorrow or grief or whatever. We learn this so well from the Psalms. Martin Luther said that if he must have only one book of the Bible, it would be the Psalms. He went on to say, in it, in the Psalms, we find what all saints do, their attitude to God, to their friends, to their foes, and their manner of life and behavior in face of manifold dangers and sufferings. Above all this, the book of Psalms contains divine and helpful doctrines and commandments of every kind. It could well be called a little Bible, since it contains, set out in the briefest and most beautiful form, all that's to be found in the whole Bible. He said, every man on every occasion can find Psalms which fit his needs, which he feels to be as appropriate as if they had been set there just for his sake. Place the book of Psalms in front of you. You will see yourself in it as well as the God who created all things. And we've been doing just that, setting the book of Psalms before us in recent weeks. We've been working our way through a section of the Psalms called the Psalms of Ascents. Fifteen Psalms from 120 to 134. And today we come to the seventh Psalm. Psalm 126. Would you turn there in your Bibles this morning to Psalm 126? As we've been learning, these Psalms of Ascents were first compiled for use during the travel of Jewish pilgrims three times a year from wherever they lived into Jerusalem, or we should say up to Jerusalem, for feasts and sacrifices. They were also used and injected with fresh meaning in some ways when God's people returned to the land after 70 years of exile and captivity in Babylon. A couple of the Psalms are written by King David, and they bear the marks of his reign, the troubles in it, the prayer requests he made, the praises, the victories. Our next Psalm, next week, Psalm 127, is written by his son Solomon, who was literally building a house for the Lord when he wrote, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. It might seem like these psalms then have nothing to do with us. Most of us in this room aren't Jewish. I'm sure most of us in this room have never made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, not least three times a year for a specific feast or sacrifice. We've never been released from bondage or slavery in Babylon. I've never been a king. I, I've never built a temple or had to rebuild a city. So it would seem as though these are not my psalms, 
It would seem as though Martin Luther was wrong in what he encouraged us in. But we've been seeing week after week in these psalms that after some reflection and proper application, these songs can be our songs. Their experiences and struggles can be our experiences and struggles. Like those who first wrote and sung these psalms, we too, Christians, are pilgrims. We're traveling through this world. We're going to God. We have come to him, but we're not yet all the way there. And along the way, we have the promises of God under arm, but we're often in circumstances that test our faith about those promises. As we said last week about Psalm 125, so it could be true of really so many of the Psalms, that they deal with the distance between God's promises and our perception. They talk about the difference between our faith and our feelings. They wrestle with what God has said in what seems to be the case. All of the Psalms of Ascents do this in one way or another, Thus, they have some repetition to them. There's a repetition of themes in these psalms. I don't know if you've noticed, if you've been with us, or you've read them before. I have certainly noticed as I prepared to preach them, it feels like sometimes the next psalm is barely different than the one or two that came before. You have the themes of lamenting difficult circumstances or even threats. You have the psalmist praying for help of recounting how God had helped in the past or rehearsing what God said he will do in the future. There's the reaffirmation of faith in these psalms and there's the resolve to praise him while we walk step by step. It's almost like a combination lock on a briefcase. Every week there's a different combination, but overall we've got the same numbers in the same dials, there's repetition in these psalms, but that is not born out of accident, and it's not born out of uncreative writing or editing. The repetition in these psalms is born out of the commonality of the experiences and the need to keep rehearsing the same simple things, simple but profound, over and over again. As I said, our songs catechize. So before we even read our psalm today, we're already at a point of application. The church, through the ages, has done and continues to do the same things over and over. As a church, we're not really working hard to try to come up with new things to do. And we're certainly not working hard to come up with new things to believe. We keep rehearsing and confessing and encouraging others in the same ancient truths. We keep reapplying those same old truths to new trials, new temptations, new anxieties or struggles. We keep reaffirming and reapplying in the same old ways. Prayer, the singing of truth and the hearing of God's word preached. 
here is Psalm 126. A song of ascents. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negeb. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Well, there are three turns in this psalm based on tense. There's past tense, there's present tense, and there's future tense. The first of these will take most of our time since it'll require some background. And the first is this, the remembrance of what God has done. That's verses 1 through 3. It's all past tense. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, our tongue with shouts of joy. They said among the nations, the Lord has done, past tense, great things for them. Indeed, the Lord has done great things for us. This is a call to remember. It's rehearsing what God has done. The word remember isn't found in our psalm, but that's what the psalm is doing, retelling, recounting, remembering. The theme of remembrance or remembering is a major one in the Bible. It is, in fact, a major assignment for God's people of every age. It's why Jesus gave us the Lord's Supper, do this in remembrance of me. If you search the words remember or remind or remembrance in our Bibles, it's soon apparent that remember in the biblical sense isn't simply calling old facts to mind again. Like the comedian Stephen Wright says, whenever I think about the past, it just brings back so many memories. That's one way to remember. But that's not what the Bible means by remembering more than calling to mind. Here's what one Hebrew dictionary I have says about the word behind English, remember, in our Bibles. It's rehearsing, even verbally so. It's considering, it's pondering, it's affecting your present feelings with remembrance. It's even celebrating or boasting, and it involves reminding others. All that in one little Hebrew word. Again, that word isn't in our psalm today, but that's what it is showing us. It's calling us to relive an event, really to relive the response to an event and an emotional response at that. What's the event? Well, verse 1, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion... Now, that could be almost any happy day in Israel's history. And it doesn't have to be monetary or materialistic restoration. That's what the word fortune brings to mind for us. But literally in the Hebrew, it says, when the Lord turned our turnings. We might say, when the Lord turned things around. When the Lord turned us around, this is the occasion. It could be just a general description of any old happy day in Israel. 
But there was a very important moment in Old Testament history when God turned his people around, turned things around, when he reversed things, when he restored things to Zion. And I think that's primarily what this psalm's about. When Judah returned to the promised land after 70 years of Babylonian slavery. Now I could summarize that Babylonian captivity for you in my own words, uh, as I've done in many sermons before. It's always good for us to know what we're talking about. Uh, there are very de varying degrees of Bible knowledge here. None of us should feel bad about not knowing something that others do. I could summarize it in my own words, or I could show you a handy summary of it at the end of Second Chronicles. Preachers love finding this kind of stuff. Good go-to passages that describe important things. So listen to this in 2 Chronicles 36. You can either turn there or just pay attention to the screen behind me where the words will go up. God's people were stubbornly sinful. So look at verse 15. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers or prophets because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord, the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword. And they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. And then verse 22, now here comes the reversal, the turn, the restoration. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go Go up, ascend, you can go back. Cyrus not only gave his blessing, but helped to rebuild. God's promised chastisement was right and good and painful, but it wasn't forever. It wasn't to be permanent, but it was long. It was hard. We've got to own that or understand that. In fact, to, to more fully appreciate how great the reversal was and the return home would be, you've got to first understand how horrific the exile was for them. This is the land 
promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob eons ago. This was the land that was fought for hard and with God's blessing was won in the days of Joshua and later in the days of David. The enemy that God had promised that they would have victory over was now having utter victory over them. And God's people were slaughtered, babies and all. The holy places were stripped and burned. All the private houses were leveled. And the remaining people were dragged off to a foreign land where they were subjugated. So remember the raw emotion of Psalm 137, which we referred to in recent weeks. It was by the waters of Babylon. There we sat down, we wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows, there we hung up our lyres, our our guitars, if you will. For there our captors required of us songs, saying, Sing us one of those songs of Zion. But how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? There was, in essence, no song among God's people for 70 years. There were no gatherings of his people for corporate worship. No temple, no sacrifice, no pilgrimages, no priests, and no king. It's like an undoing or an unraveling of all the promises of old. Or so it would seem. But God, rich in mercy and faithful to all his promises, not just promises of judgment or chastisement, but also his promises to turn around, to turn the turn, to let them go up. And they were glad. Remember Psalm 122? I was glad when they said, let us go. Or Isaiah 48, go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea, declare this with a shout of joy. How glad were they? Well, our Psalm 126 says, we were like those who dream. It was like a dream come true. Some weird or scary dreams, you wake up and you're glad that it was just a dream. Just a few days ago, I had a weird dream about having to take a train to Pittsburgh. And then somehow I got to the end of this path, a dead end, small town, I don't know what it was, maybe Wilkes-Barre or something. But there were no signs to get to Pittsburgh. I was in the wrong spot, and I couldn't get to Pittsburgh. I was asking people for help. I was looking for a map. I couldn't find one. How do you get to Pittsburgh? I don't know. I thought, well, I can go back the way I came, and I know there are signs there for Pittsburgh. I'll get on the right train there. But, but it's three hours back and three hours there, and then I'm going to be late for whatever I had to do in Pittsburgh. I don't know. <laughs> These are our dreams, aren't they? They don't give us all the details. And then I realized, I can wake up. This is a dream. I've never been to Pittsburgh. I don't know anyone in Pittsburgh. I don't want to go to Pittsburgh. And so I woke up, and I I wasn't in Wilkes-Barre. I was in my bedroom, and I was glad. On the other hand, Sarah has the recurring dream 
where she discovers a whole section of our house that we've never seen before and we haven't been using. It's like an apartment or a wing or a basement or an attic. And she says in her dream, oh, this is the answer. You know, now we can get kids in their own bedrooms and have a guest room and a, a place for a ping pong table. This is great. How come we didn't use this? And then she wakes up. And she goes looking for a little bit to see if maybe there is. No, she doesn't. She knows we know our house well enough to know there isn't that undiscovered, unutilized section. Well, unlike both of those dreams, Psalm 126 is talking about a dream come true. And it leads to a mouth full of laughter, verse 2. The jaw-dropping awe, almost disbelief gives way to laughter, and laughter is contagious. It spreads and it swells in a group of people. So imagine these pilgrims on that long journey from Babylon home, singing, shouting. One starts laughing. Can it be? Are we really? After all this? I've never even seen Jerusalem. I've just heard about it. He starts laughing, and others start laughing along the way. Our tongue was filled with shouts of joy. Three times in our psalm, we see shouts of joy. They were likely shouting these very psalms we've been studying. To you, we lift up our eyes, you who are enthroned in heaven. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. If the Lord hadn't been on our side all that time, we'd have been doomed. This release from captivity became famous. Even the surrounding nations marveled about it. You see the second half of verse 2. Then they said among the nations, that is those of the nations, said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Even unbelieving nations had to acknowledge the Lord had done this because it was so unusual for a foreign, conquering, subjugating king to release thousands or a million people back to their own land. It's as if there's a conversation going on between the nations and God's people. The nations declare in verse 2, and and then God's people in verse 3 respond with affirmation and praise. Yes, the Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. God's people look back. Remember, this is put in past tense. We were. He had. It's about those who look back and remember the response of those who pilgrimed from Babylon to Jerusalem returning home. It's what God's people always do. They look back. They look back to the Exodus and to the Red Sea and to the miraculous provision for God's people in the wilderness. They look back to the quaking of Sinai, the giving of the law, and the promises given to David. They also look back to the captivity and the faithfulness of the Lord, to discipline but not destroy. Eventually, God turned the turn. He restored the fortunes. So when the way ahead seems unclear, or dangerous, look back. It'd be dangerous to drive a car primarily looking in the rearview mirror. 
Can you imagine getting in someone's car? They're driving you somewhere. It's starting to rain. It's starting to rain more. It's getting darker. It's getting foggy. And he says, I know. I'll just look in the rear view mirror. I can't see out there. I'm going to look in the rear view mirror and I'll just sort of be excited and give thanks to God for all the things in the back of us that we didn't hit. That's how we'll get through this. Well, that would be dumb and dangerous. So this is like an, an anti-illustration, an opposite illustration. It's bad for driving, but that's good for Christian living. It's stupid in a car, but that's essential for the Christian life to drive looking in the rearview mirror. When God's people can't see the way forward, they just keep looking back. Thus far, the Lord has been our help. And think about this. We can look back upon way more than anyone who ever wrote Psalm 126 or whoever sung it as a pilgrimage to Jerusalem or even those who left Babylon to return home after 70 years. We can look back to everything that they can look back upon. And we can also look ahead to later prophets we can look ahead to Jesus, the Son of God and Son of David, to the Gospels, to the cross and to the resurrection, to the ascension, to Pentecost, to the commission, to the spread of the Gospel in the book of Acts and beyond, the preservation of the Gospel in centuries past. We can look back to God's hand in our lives Look back to our own conversion. How did the gospel come to you? Ponder that. Rejoice in it. Think about how God sustains you spiritually and otherwise. Think of the countless meals and the untold blessings and the millions of millions of things that we take for granted. We can look back even upon our trials. We can say that we got through it. The Lord got us through it. He purified us, purified us in the process. You prayed more then than you maybe do now, and you're thankful as you look back. The Lord taught you something about prayer in the midst of heartache. You can look back to seasons of spiritual growth, of learning certain doctrines or clearing up some false ones, or even just those fresh little discoveries that hopefully each Christian makes on their own as they read their Bible. How sweet, how good, how much we have to look back upon. It's what Christians do. I fear that home movies might be a thing of the past. That is, self-made movies in your home about things happening in your home, like Christmas or birthdays. That's what I mean by home movies. I don't think anyone talks about home movies anymore because we have our cell phones, we take a picture, we do a video, and we do that whether it's cheesecake or something momentous like high school graduation. It sort of goes in the same place. It's either on the computer hard drive or on Facebook or on Twitter. I wonder how many of us today actually go through our photos or go through our home movies, whether they're on our computer or not, and really just sit and, and watch. 
in my house growing up, we had a reel-to-reel projector and with the films to go with it. We had films from before I was born, maybe 20, 30, 40 years before that, and then up through maybe being five or so, we still had these films. When I was five, I remember seeing films of me playing and Every now and then, someone would get one of these films out or later on, a VHS tape out, and and the rest of the family would sort of gather around. You're mesmerized by the past. You see those who have passed on, and there they are. They're on a screen, but they're moving, they're talking, they're smiling. We'd watch, we'd cry, we'd laugh, we'd remember Well, Christian, keep playing the highlight reels of God's mercies and gifts and victories in your life over and over again. When the present is hard, when the future is uncertain, just look back to what he's done. So won't you afresh today Say, the Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. And don't you want the nations to join in to say, the Lord has done great things for them? You want the nations to join in? Well, get laughing. Get laughing. Shout with joy. Oh, yes, there's a time to mourn. There's a time to celebrate. Click your heels in the air. To tell them what he's done for your soul. So that's remembrance. Now secondly, there's the request for God to do more. That's verse 4, a request. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Excuse me, like streams in the Negev. The remembrance of past restoration turns into a prayer for new or more restoration. Why? Well, because when the exiles came home from Babylon, they did not return to the land as it was 70 or 80 years ago. Only a portion of those exiled returned to Israel. Houses were in heaps, temple in crumpled masses, city walls burned and tore down. Just think of the land. The land was laid bare and it was, it was fallow for decades. It seemed almost inhabitable land. Yes, the people began to rebuild the temple and, and later the city walls, but there was constant discouragement from within the people and constant opposition from outside the people. The Lord had restored their fortunes by unthinkably releasing them from Cyrus's captivity, but they still needed to pray that the Lord would restore again, that he would restore some more. There's an element of now and not yet, even here in these Old Testament days. The land was dry. It was like the Negeb all over. 
The Negev was a southern desert region in Israel, and it was especially dry and hot and crusty and lifeless. But in the winter months, when the rain would come in the north, streams would flow into the Negev. That's what this prayer is for, for God to bring life from death, restoration to the desolate Yes, the land was literally dry and crusty and needing water, but it's just a metaphor for overall dry and dead circumstances, even dry people, Negeb-like people. Haggai was a prophet in these days. His little prophecy takes up just two pages in my Bible, uh, I dare you to try to find it if you don't know the song that goes with the books of the Bible in order. It's hard to find, but it is good. His little prophecy rebukes and encourages the people at the same time. In chapter 1 of Haggai, the people of Judah were rebuked because they'd grown discouraged about the rebuilding of the temple, and they have grown distracted about building their own houses. Now, the building of the temple took 22 years in those days. So we can have some empathy. We can imagine being distracted, let's say, with a 22-year building campaign for a church. You'd probably switch churches. But this isn't church. This is the temple, the house of the Lord. And it shouldn't have taken priority over even their own homes. So God sent Haggai to rebuke them. And to tell them that the land is going to stay dry and crusty until they get back to work. And some of them did just that. They got back to work on the temple. Zerubbabel led the way. And in the midst of their renewed rebuilding efforts, God sent another word through Haggai. And now it's a word of encouragement and hope. Haggai 2, verse 3 who is left among you, God says, who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Half built and not as big. Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet, now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I'm with you, declares the Lord according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts. Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord. Now if Psalm 126 verse 4 is a request for God to do even more than he had done, then Haggai shows that God answers that in spades to the hilt. They simply asked for God to restore the rest of the fortunes 
to put us back in the land, to turn us back to where we were before this captivity took place. But God increases the promises once more. There's a global thing that God is going to do according to Haggai 2. And that poses a problem if we're thinking about this because Haggai 2 is so grand and so lofty, so incredible and even so global that you have to ask, well, when did that ever take place? We know the walls got rebuilt. We know the temple was rebuilt and sacrifices were reinstituted, but nothing like Haggai 2 ever happened. And what's more, in the days of the prophets that followed Haggai, they kept adding to these enormous promises. They talked about all the nations coming to the Lord for salvation and worship. A greater son of David coming who reigns over all the world in shepherds gently. A suffering servant who would come and bear the payment for the sins of the people once for all. God himself, in fact, coming and coming in judgment and salvation. The prophets foresaw a temple which has rivers flowing out of it to heal the nations, to bring almost an Eden-like, a garden of Eden-like new creation. And they say over and over, a new creation, a new creation. That's one way of summarizing all of these grand promises spoken in the later prophets. A new creation. Do you feel the tension? The tension was there in the writing of Psalm 126 and in the experience of Ezra and Nehemiah. It was there in the writing of Haggai and also increasingly so in the prophets that followed. It was tension that was building even through those 400 silent years between our Old Testament and New Testament. It was an eerie silence. But then in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. God came. He dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. Jesus is the promised son of David and that great shepherd of the sheep. All nations, even in his life and ministry, were coming to him. And all the more since then. He is that temple from which flow rivers of life-giving water. He brings a new covenant. He gives new hearts, the forgiveness of sin. He gives his spirit. He brought that true and final kingdom of God. We don't yet see it, but it's here. The kingdom of God is at hand. He brought the true and final kingdom of God of which old Jerusalem was simply a foreshadow. How do we know that? Well, remember how I said that Haggai promised the shaking of heavens and earth so that the nations would come in? Well, Hebrews 12 tells us what that means and when it happened. Hebrews 12, he has promised, and here's the Haggai quote, Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The writer of Hebrews explains. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken or are shakeable. That is, things that have been made. 
in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The Old Testament temple and priesthood and sacrifices, that's shaken. It's shakable. Christ's kingdom and his priesthood and his once-for-all sacrifice, that's unshakable. And in this unshakable kingdom, there we have the new creation. The new creation, just as the prophets promised. All who are in Jesus are part of a new, what? Creation. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us, Behold, all things are passing away. Behold, all things are becoming new. And yet, it's not all new yet. It's not a full new creation yet. In some ways, this world is Negeb. There's Negeb deserts of dryness and deadness all around. And yet the water has come. The streams are flowing. They're continuing to swell. The quench of these parched souls is beginning to spread. Jesus offered the Samaritan woman at the well living water that fully and finally quenches thirst. He is that living water. And those that believe in him, John 7 says, out of them will flow rivers of life-giving waters for others. So if you're a Christian, this is your story. The Lord has restored your fortunes. He's turned the turn. You were as dry and dead as Negeb. That's all right. He can get life-giving streams to you. And he did. You once were far off, but now you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Is that true of you today? Are you here today and you'd have to say, I don't think I've been brought near to God. I think I'm far off. Well, that's a good start. It's good to know you're far off and you're not right with God because of your sin. Now, turn to him. Turn. He can turn the turn in your life. Those who once were far off can be now brought near by the blood of Christ. If you believe that, if you ask him for it, if you trust in nothing else, he will give you that forgiveness and mercy and reconciliation today. Christian, in some ways we've moved long past the days of Psalm 126. More has happened, more has been said. But there is something still so familiar to us about what Psalm 126 says. We can rightly resonate with all of its lines. We too ponder what God has done in the past. We too pray for him to do more because he's not done. We pray, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Christians have been praying that since Jesus first taught the disciples to pray it. We pray, your name 
be hallowed or made holy. It's not hallowed enough in this world. It's not hallowed enough in my life. I don't know about yours. He's not done. And he's not done with us. It's a now and not yet kind of thing. We've been freed from the Babylon of sin. We've been reconciled to our God, but we're not yet fully home. He's not yet done. We've been justified. We are being sanctified. One day we will be glorified. In the meantime, we're being renewed. There's ongoing renewal and growth, despite the fact that we've already been once for all restored to fellowship with him. Colossians 3 tells us that we're to be putting off the old self and being renewed in a new self created in the image of Jesus. Or, as 2 Corinthians 4 tells us, we're being renewed in that image as we behold Christ in the scriptures. So thank God for what he has done. Boldly pray for him to still do more and show you more and to work more. And when you feel dry as Negeb, because Christians sometimes still do, well, pray. Pray for him to bring streams of refreshment. He can. He has. We might not see it right away. We might not feel it when we would want to. He might not bring it to us in the way we expect, but we trust him to bring streams of healing and refreshment in his time and in his way because he has. Looking back, he has. And in the meantime, we get to work. We press on. Or third, the reward of those who persevere. That's verses five and six. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. It's future tense, what will come, but the tears are now. There will be tears until he wipes away every tear from our eyes. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. We have tears, and yet sowing is still required of us, even in the tears. To sow here means to be productive. So those who sang 126 in the days of Haggai were sowing a temple. They were rebuilding a temple. Some were no doubt also sowing literal seeds in the ground because they needed to eat in order to live there. For us, sowing can be anything that's productively serving our God and loving our neighbor. And sometimes we got to get after it, even with tears in our eyes. Are tears getting in the way of your sowing? Maybe this morning all you see is tears, proverbially speaking. Pray that God would remove the thing causing the tears. Sure. Pray that God would wipe your tears, sure. Pray also that God would give you the energy and the wisdom to sow while you weep. Do whatever's next. He who goes out with weeping, sometimes you just need to get out, get out, start heading out, take the next step. Just open that Bible, 
Just begin to pray again. Just go to church again next Sunday and the next. One foot in front of another. There you go, Christian. That's what we do. We just keep walking. Stay productive while you wait. Stay productive while you weep. Now in the New Testament, sowing is most often used for a specific kind of work a Christian does. You could call it gospeling, evangelizing, good newsing. It's planting the seed of good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins into the ears and the minds and hopefully into the hearts of those who will hear us. Are you doing any seeding of the gospel these days? I don't mean you're carrying around some seeds. I don't mean you're waiting for someone to ask you if you got any seeds. I don't mean, well, you're having them over to dinner 45 times because you got some seeds you might want to tell them about later if they ask, if they're in trouble. Are you doing any seeding? When's the last time you've communicated the bare facts of the gospel to someone who doesn't yet embrace them. That's seeding. You, you say, well, you don't know the people I'm around. It's not fertile ground. Well, I know that Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 to preach the word in season and out of season when it looks like it will produce fruit and when it doesn't. Trust God. Trust God for the fruit. Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 said that he planted in Apollos watered, but it was God who gave the increase. Only he can take that little seed and give it life. That little seed, it's crazy, isn't it? I've never done any farming. I don't want to. But I'm fascinated by it, largely because the Bible so often uses it as an illustration and what I've learned by observation is that sowing or farming is slow and patient work. A farmer has to sow his seed in faith because if the rains don't come, the seed doesn't spring up. Even with rain, not all seed comes to life and produces a crop. A seed must die in the ground in order to become something else. And then when that happens, something becomes alive and it grows and it gives life to others. This is our reward. These are our sheaves. So why do we sow? Because God commands us to, yes. But because of the reward, those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, he shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Do you know what sheaves are? You've seen them, no doubt. Picture wheat in piles as tall as a man is high and as wide as he can wrap his arms around. A little seed dropped into the ground with rain, with God's cultivation of that soil, that little seed can produce sheaves of wheat. So go out. Wipe your tears away. They'll keep coming, I know. 
Mine do. But get busy. Throw seed in the ground. When it looks difficult, ponder the works of old. Pray for him today to do even more and press on until it's done because one day it will be done. We will reap the sheaves a plenty, and we will come home with shouts of joy. I haven't thought about that old hymn in a long time, but I did this week. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. One day we will see him. We will be with others who love him and worship him. Let's look to the reward. Let's look to the end. We've already seen it through the eyes and the pen of the Apostle John. I close with this from Revelation 7. And here is the glory and the beauty of the sheaves that God is producing and will show forth in the end of time. John looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more. Neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice, for the salvation that's in your name. We pray that news... And belief in that gospel would spread even here today. And that others would join us one day before your throne. What a glorious spectacle that will be. What a glorious spectacle you will be when we see you face to face. We thank you for your glorious promises. We thank you, Lord, for the pilgrimage you have us on. We don't know what's next, but our eyes are on you. We don't always know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Give us faith and endurance, joy and boldness. And Lord, help us all the more to long for that day when we will feast with each other and angels and before you, our God and our King. Amen.